0: Hi hi and welcome to our Paddington 2 companion podcast. This is Travelling Symphony. My name is John and this is Katie. Hello. We are particularly excited for this podcast because we have some really, really superb guests. Um, we had such a great time during the live watch on Friday evening and it was really capped off with, with what we thought was a really fantastic chat with one Sanjeev Bhaskar who played Dr. Jaffrey in Paddington 2 but also has a really long and storied career in film, TV and radio. It's just uh, such a pleasure to chat with him, not just from his perspective as someone who was a character within Paddington 2, but also his role as an actor, as a a creator, um, as a British Asian person who was working their way up through TV, and also as a guy who's just a massive film fan.
1: One of... Our really key aims was we wanted to talk about the issues around the film and immigration in particular, because it's such a strong theme throughout. And we were just so lucky to be able to get this perspective from Sanjeev. He just has so much knowledge of film and culture and history. And we spoke about everything from World War Two to the British Empire to...
0: To film history and the way that films often reflect the eras that they are made, but sometimes in ways you wouldn't necessarily expect.
1: Yeah, it was just such a lovely, enriching chat, and I felt personally like I learned so much from it, so I really hope that everyone else does too.
0: We spoke to him about a live YouTube conversation that Riz Ahmed hosted with Guz Khan and Hassan Minaj, which we will link to in our podcast description as well, because it's really worth watching. And they talked a lot about being Asian in the film and TV industry, the struggles of representation. And also they spoke a lot about uh, Riz Ahmed's album and short film, The Long Goodbye, which really chronicles his feelings about the way that his country has changed and the way that he feels the UK is, is breaking up with him. Um, we also had the chance to talk to Josh Hallam from Help Refugees. So it was great to get the chance to also speak to someone who has that perspective from a refugee organisation.
1: Yeah, it was really great to speak to Josh and hear some of those real-world examples that also relate back to Paddington 2.
0: Yeah, first off, we're going to hear from Sanjeev and we started off by asking him what his experiences were working on the Paddington 2 set.
2: One of the most joyous experiences I've had, actually. Um, A really happy set, incredibly collaborative, just really good fun. I I mean, I think everybody loved the first film, so, you know, the regulars and plus the... Uh, the Neighbours, The New Neighbours. Yeah, it was just a really happy set. I mean, I kind of knew quite a few people on it. So I'd worked with a few people and, and uh, I'd certainly met a lot of the neighbours before. So Jessica Hines I'd worked with, Ben Miller I'd worked with, Peter Capaldi I'd, and I, worked with, I had worked with him um, uh, at that stage. Um, I did m- mention to Hugh Bonneville that actually in a really small way, uh, having Hugh Bonneville, Hugh Grant, and myself in it was like a mini Notting Hill reunion. So... <laughs>
0: <laughs> I did notice on your IMDb
2: you played Loud Man in Restaurant. So yeah, well that's you know the film is about a Loud, the loud man, man in the restaurant in a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, and there's some other characters. that do stuff. Um, so it was really lovely to kind of you know hook up with them uh, as well, and a really funny script, uh, really warm script as well, and I think that's been borne out by the reactions. Uh, That people have had to the film, but it it worked on the page. So yeah, just I mean, that sounds dull, but an absolute delight.
0: You mentioned, you know, the the way that the script comes across and the way that, that the reception has been. And one of the huge themes that that Paddington really drives home is this importance of of community, the power of community, and how important it is to integrate immigrants and refugees into society and how beneficial they can be to society as a whole. How important do you think that message is? you know, at this time, especially, you know, given what everybody's going
2: through. Yeah, it is a really important message. And I think across the two films, I thought it was probably two of the best films that in a way defines that relationship of the outsider and the host, you know, in this country and, and how we view those people who come from elsewhere. And one of the things with the second film was that the, the group of neighbours were deliberately written. It's quite an international group of people. So within that group, you've got, you know, you've got my accent and then you've got West African accents. You've got French accents uh, across the, the prisoners. You have a whole range of accents there as well. Irish, obviously, with Brendan. The misconceptions that we might have or the preconceptions, I guess, that we have of the outsider kind of really challenged very well in that film while still being really entertaining and still being really funny. I'm not completely au fait with the books, but I imagine they kind of, it was much more of a surgical point that was being made in the films than the books.
0: We had um, the pleasure of watching the Riz Ahmed, uh, Guz Khan and Hassan Minaj live YouTube chat that they had uh, last night, which was Friday night. And within that, they talked quite extensively about uh, Riz's album, The Long Goodbye, and the way that he feels sort of a grieving process of of a nation that is is breaking up with him, we were really interested in just hearing what your your reaction and your perspective was on that that conversation and on
2: the issues that were raised. Uh, Riz's um, album and particularly the short film that he did, the Long Goodbye film, is is really powerful. I mean, it's a really kind of horrific film, and uh, with some really powerful kind of commentary at the end. It's it's a weird one because uh, I think like two of them. Uh, like Guz and Riz, I was born in London and brought up here. And so that notion of never being fully accepted or being fully kind of let alone embraced is one that I've grown up with. So it it was interesting. I kind of had a conversation with somebody quite recently about the term white privilege. And he was saying to me that, um, you know, he was white and he said a lot of his friends are not privileged at all. And and I said, you're absolutely right. I'm sure they're not. You know, the, the term white privileges requires context. And I said, if you think about, you know, your kind of friends who are not privileged at all, who may be on benefits, who've had terrible upbringings and are still suffering from that, in no way does anybody kind of refer to that situation as privileged at all. But I said, as a really basic bottom line example, I said, the difference between me, who I am quite privileged, simply because I'm doing for a living what I love and so that's a privilege in itself and have managed incredibly to have a career is that the difference between me and that person that friend who has no money and terrible upbringing and his marriage is broken up and he can't access his his kids is that I said unlike him I can still and do still get told to piss off back to my own country I said that that is a basic bottom level thing but I said it needs to be contextualized and so it's it's really easy to throw terms like white privilege around without that kind of quite important context. So that notion of being kind of an outsider, it's also something linking back to what Riz and Gus and Hassan were talking about, is that it can also be a, an asset, because it gives you a viewpoint and an experience that you can then channel, you know, into your work, or if you happen to be creative. And I think that Certainly, for me, everything that i 've been involved in creating in terms of TV programs and stuff has dealt with those misconceptions or playing with that you know difference of perception so it it can be an asset, but that 's kind of balanced off against those kids who maybe don 't have that outlet and are told to kind of piss off to their own countries from the age of four, five, six, and they don 't have a creative outlet or or uh, the opportunities, perhaps, to uh, express themselves in any other way. And so that, you know, that can be incredibly damaging. I mean, it's damaging communally. It's damaging to all of us. You know, it's one of those questions that whenever I've been asked about uh, representation and diversity in this country, for me, those words are not limited to uh, race or colour. It's also about gender and it's also about the regions of the country. And one of the problems I think that there has been is that until we collectively decide that all of those stories are our stories, there'll always be someone else's. And so that just reinforces the us and them thing. So as a a lover of film, for me, um, growing up, a film from South Korea, for instance, never felt like it wasn't my story or it couldn't be my story. And in fact, anybody who kind of loves films, that's the way you get into it. You, there's a point at which you stop thinking it's about someone else. And it's when you kind of, you know, engage with and relate to the characters, which is which is good storytelling. So I think, you know, here, that notion of kind of if it's if it's told from a female perspective, that as a male, it's not part of my story is part of the challenge that comes up it's just easier with race because people have different names and they're shaded differently. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's it's obviously it's a visually distinctive feature. So it's, it's very easy to, like you say, to just categorise rather than really go into the nuance of it. And like you say, there are many different people with many different stories. Everyone has, at some point, experienced some level of prejudice, injustice, you know, but, and obviously, we're not saying it's all to the same degree, But like you say, it's all our story. It's all part of our culture and our upbringing. And it's also all our responsibility to make it better.
2: I think so. And also, you know, the the thing that underlies all of it is empathy. And, you know, if people can't empathize, if someone has gone through something, as you're saying, through that prejudice or being sidelined or being stereotyped, uh, you know, whether, you know, it's simply as a man or simply as a woman or as a woman from a particular part of the country or, you know, a Scottish bloke or a Welsh woman or whatever it is, if you have felt that and then you don't have empathy for someone else who's experienced something similar, then, you know, you're either, you know, the, the damage in you is is so deep that you're still being protective about it or you're just really thick or, or you're a twat. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, it's those three, isn't it? So you're either stupid, you're either kind of really still hurt or you're a twat. So
0: it's, um, it's the only three options really yeah. I, I can't think of a fourth But
2: so.
1: <laughs> that's definitely true
0: you you mentioned a little bit about you know the the tv shows that you've created and you could make a very strong case that you paved the way for people like Guz Khan to create shows like Manlo Mabeen and do you feel like the tv industry in in the UK has moved on somewhat from when you were trying to get your TV show started? And and what were your experiences of trying to get your shows on the
2: air? Gosh, uh, which one first? Um, (laughs) The experiences of getting them on actually were quite hard. We, uh, with Goodness Gracious Me, um, the sketch show, uh, we we were given initially, when we presented the BBC with the idea, we were given uh, six days to come up with a live show from scratch um and we as a group we hadn't we didn't know each other particularly beforehand so uh, we were all kind of new to each other so in six days we came up with a bunch of material and uh, did it in front of a live audience and we then said to the bbc well could we have a tv show now and they said no you can have a radio pilot so we did a radio pilot got onto a radio series and that did quite well and uh, we said direct. Right, so can we have a tele-series now? And they said, "Yeah, you can do a tele-pilot. So then we did a TV pilot. And then when we did the first series, I think it was originally uh, marked to go out at, I think it was something like 11 o'clock on a Tuesday night on <laughs> BBC Two. And golden I golden slot. Saying, <laughs> Asian prime time uh, <laughs> is what I called it then. and um, And it was only when we kicked up a little bit of a fuss and they looked at the kind of response they were getting from the various focus groups or whatever, that we then ended up at nine o'clock on a Friday evening with the, the Kumars at number 42. I'd had the idea while I was still doing goodness gracious me, but um it got turned down by everyone for about five years, actually before somebody kind of said, Oh, okay. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> and in, the, in that time, uh, you know, we'd also had Mrs. Merton and Ali G and I was saying, Look, you've had those now. They're characters that interview people. and But this is a family. And people are still going, no, nah, I don't get it. <laughs> um, so when that um, finally, someone took a risk on it, that was quite major for me, actually, because it was a, a series that then played abroad and it did really well in across Asia and Australia and South Africa. We have got a couple of Emmys for it and a Peabody Award. And so that kind of established that. And then I did a series called The Indian Doctor, which we, we kind of, again, aimed as a primetime Sunday evening type, sort of like a heartbeat type show. Um, but we were only given the funds and the slots to put it on in daytime on the BBC. So each time it's been a struggle. In terms of, if, if is it any better now? You know, in terms of representation for the Asians, I think probably, yes, uh, except not for Asian stories particularly british asian stories so goodness gracious me and the kumars and the indian doctor were all about british asian experiences um so still trying to sell something like that to any of the channels is i mean everything i've come up with has been turned down so it's a better head count there are more kind of Asians on screen than there were and it's only been relatively recently if you think about british asian experience as a specific thing as a little kind of like um sub-genre, then really there's only kind of two or three things that have been on probably in the last 10 years that I can think of. So, you know, in terms of that experience, it's still quite difficult to get those stories on because they're still seen as their stories, not our stories. It's really
0: interesting, that notion of, of a, a British Asian story. Mm-hmm. When we've spoken to our friends who are people of colour, they say that a lot of the stories about race in our pop culture a lot of it is very American slanted, and it's all about civil rights movement and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And it's very difficult to find those those very British stories because it's not mm-hmm. the same experience. We're not America. No,
1: it's not the same history. It's not the same issues. It's just a completely different culture. So
0: it's it's, it's interesting to to hear you say that how difficult it is to get those things produced on the air. Are there any particular strong examples how, from this limited pool that people could possibly check out that are speak, speak more to a British
2: experience? Uh, do you know what, I mean, there are so few, even if I start from kind of goodness gracious me and the and uh, the Indian doctor, all of which I, obviously I was involved <laughs> in. Uh, but, you know, whether it's man like Movin, or it's people who just do nothing, um, Citizen Khan, I suppose, to a certain extent, um, comes into that category. And I'm kind of hard pushed to think of any more, really, you know, and that's across 20 years. There might be the odd one or two that I've kind of missed, or, you know, there've been one-off dramas, Murdered by My Father was a BAFTA winning one. um, That was very good, Um, but not in terms of regular entertainment. And I think that the part of the otherness is this idea of, you know, the names are different, and also there is a different language and a different culture that comes behind it, that, that weighs into it. Whereas in America, the black experience, in terms of language and culture, was exactly the same as anyone else. They all spoke English. Uh, You know, it was the black community that created the blues and rhythm and blues and gospel. And so there were a lot of crossover points of performers, initially from music, uh, whether it was, you know, Louis Armstrong or Lena Horne or uh, people like that. And then into the kind of 50s and 60s, people like Sidney Poitier, who kind of crossed into those sort of mainstream films that helped that transition in a way because of the civil rights movement and how big and how important that was people were just far more aware of the importance of inclusion and i think so you know that that, that was something that kind of then happened across the 60s and 70s and 80s into the point you know you, what you need are those people who kind of break through so there's a point at which nobody says black actor will smith <laughs> because he's just too, but you know what I mean? He kind of yeah. crosses over the, you don't have to explain his presence anymore because he, Denzel Washington, you know, people like that are just mainstream stars. For whatever um, group that is trying to get visibility, particularly in entertainment, I think the, the adage of you have to be able to see it to be it is kind of important. That generation of actors like Denzel Washington and people like that were inspired by the Sydney Poitiers. You know the Sydney Poitiers were kind of like inspired, probably by somebody else. So there is that kind of notion, and I, I, we haven't quite had that here yet, I don't think. Riz Ahmed is probably the closest in terms of the British Asian community, or, or Dev Patel, uh, who've kind of you know crossed over into kind of major films. But there'll be a generation, you know, that will be inspired by that, and producers and directors and writers who'll kind of say, well, actually, no, just uh, David Copperfield, which was. Which was great. It was great because it was a good film. You know, the fact that Deb Patel was playing the, the central character in the end, it was neither here nor there, really.
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Riz Ahmed spoke a lot about this idea of cultural stretching. Um, and what do you think the role of the arts is and things like film um, for that and for changing those perceptions? And how important do you think that is at a time like this?
2: I think film's always done that. You know, Films, you know, primarily was created as entertainment, but I don't think there's a social responsibility. I don't think there's any kind of responsibility to be quite honest, because that's something that an individual chooses. Uh, so for instance, something like 1917, um, there was, as you're aware, uh, some criticism about there yes. being <laughs> a Sikh soldier in it. Yes. And, um, uh, and in fact, to the, the person who questioned that notion, uh, I did send a message and say, look, the reason that it might've been weird to you is because there's never been other films with Sikh soldiers in it. They were always there. You know, it's not that they weren't there and suddenly in order to be kind of PC, someone's kind of stuck them in there. They were always there. And actually that then as a paper trail for people to find out about that contribution You know, I did a short film about 20 years, just over 20 years ago called The Dancer Shiva, which was an extraordinary experience because I I worked with and then became friends with Jack Cardiff, who's one of the great cinematographers who worked with Paul and Pressburger. And, you know, he won his Oscar for Black Narcissus and he did Matter of Life and Death. And he was just an extraordinary guy. And I became friends with him. And, you know, I ended up working with him and with John Box, who was David Lean's designer on it. And uh, and it was about. Indian Soldiers in the Trenches. It was a sort of 22-minute film. So I knew plenty about it. But, uh, you know, it's that's where film has the opportunity to educate, not in any kind of heavy-handed way, but just as a touch paper for people to go and find out more. I've I've always been obsessed with the Second World War. And, you know, one of the reasons I got obsessed with it was watching war films when I was a kid. So starting with The Great Escape... Which is still brilliant, and it's still that moment where Gordon Jackson gets on the bus, oh. and the guy says, "Good luck." You're still willing to get to go. go oh, just, shut up. Um, <laughs> just shut up! Don't, don't say anything. Um, but that, you know, that films like that were the ones that got me reading about the actual uh, uh, experiences of that, and that's where it's it's great, and it's it's incredible
0: because we often talk about the fact that. A lot of British Empire history isn't covered in our history lessons and there are a lot of people that we talk to that have no negative perceptions of the way that the empire acted at all and they think that the British Empire was a universal good mm-hmm. and it's something that we've often talked about trying to do something to try to to shine a bit of a light on on this and yeah. and not just to 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 say, you know, guys, the British Empire wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, but also to tell the stories like the the Indian Volunteer Army mm. and try and bring a bit more a nuance to to people's perceptions of World War II, rather than just you know Normandy and and yeah. Dunkirk.
2: It's tricky because you know people don't want to feel guilty, and they don't know what to do with the guilt, and in a way. The, the problem is that, you know, particularly somewhere like Britain, where there's always been a very distinct identity to being Scottish or Welsh uh, or Irish because there's a language that that differs. Um, but those notions of defining what Englishness is, is is quite hard. And the problem with for a lot of people is that if you do that, then go into the empire, the big dramatic stuff is going to be terrible extraordinarily as well that this tiny little kind of island then went off and nicked a whole bunch of countries around the world which is which is extraordinary in itself but as ever you know it was never a, a, an exercise in kind of humility it was all about conquest you know it's exactly what the spanish were doing to south america and central america and the french were doing in in various parts you know indochina and bits of africa and so it was this battle between three or four European countries to actually control and get assets of whatever kind. That's the way it is. Now, the thing is, I, you know, I don't hold anybody I know responsible for that. But at, at, particularly at this time, when, when people are scrabbling to find some sort of pride in their past, you do get the situation with Brexit, where no doubt there were a lot of people who voted for it for their own sound reasons. But there are also a bunch of people who kind of voted on it on the basis of empire. You know, it's it's like people who still will invoke, we didn't fight the Nazis. Because, and you've got to go, you didn't fight the Nazis <laughs> at all. You've, you've never even seen a Nazi. You've seen a bunch of films, but it becomes the we, because the that importance of the we is, is, is quite fundamental. And we collectively need that. We need to find a we that... Uh, includes people like you and people like me and people like my parents and you know refugees who came over here and then settled here we need to find that we that connects all of us with some sense of pride and i think that the danger and the difficulty the challenge really with teaching the truth of empire is that you basically got a bunch of people in the room who kind of go i don't know what to do with this bad feeling now so the way the way that it's it's taught would be the thing to tackle is to kind of go, let's not be judgmental about it. Let's just look at what is. The truth is never uh, judgmental. It just happens to be the truth. You know, we will decide from that, uh, from whatever perception we have of it, uh, you know, whether we are angry at someone with it because of it or not. That's a personal choice. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think that that example can be seen a lot more in America at the moment because they can't hide from the truth. While we seem to somehow be under this rock, they can't deny their history. It's very, very obvious and they're obviously, that's what they're going through now, these struggles of how to live with that, what to do with that, how to move forward, how to unite. Um, and like you said, no one really seems to know what, what the answer yeah. is.
2: But it's, but it's interesting with, with America, if you look at films, so their mythology is really the Wild West. You know, it's it's breaking free from Britain, as a colonial power and uh, the Wild West. Now, there's not many films, there are some, there are not many films I can think of that tell that story from the Native American view. Most of the films up until the 70s and probably early 80s were all about European-based races. The others were savages, you know, there's the, it was reduced to that kind of term. But also how film, being an American medium, fundamentally, uh, before it was exported around the world in such huge amounts, they mythologized themselves anyway. You know, Second World War films, from an American point of view, are you know about John Wayne taking out an entire Panzer division <laughs> on his own. Yeah, you know, it's it's that. I mean, even in you, a film that I really like, but um, Saving Private Ryan, you know, the the contribution of the British forces in Europe is trashed in one line uh, by Ted Danson's character who just says Montgomery's overrated. And you go, fine, you know, that that could have been a view that someone held. But in terms of, you know, when you're you're creating that context of the film for the American audience, they're kind of rah 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 at that point, Mm -hmm. aren't
0: they? Yeah.
2: You know, so it's an interesting thing with film because because I think that for a lot of people, history has been defined by what they've seen on screen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as opposed to kind of reading books or first hand accounts or any of that stuff, they will believe what they saw in the film. There will be elements of it that are true. Pearl Harbor, you know, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah, that happened that way. And there was a gunner on there, a black gunner on there who shot down a few uh, Japanese planes and and won a medal. It is true that the Americans then uh, created these reprisal attacks against Tokyo. That's all true. But people will also then believe that Ben Affleck got in a plane, flew up and sort of shot down 20 with his best mate. You know, they'll, they'll believe that as well. Because, it, you know, the film isn't going to tell you which bits are true. No. And that's no. up to you to go and discover. Find them, out you know? for yourself, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah, and also what films can do that often you wouldn't get if it was just looking at the facts is you get the story but you get the emotional connection to the characters, what they must have been going through and that that empathy that we talked about before that really you can't get that elsewhere in film. We just said we watched Paddington twice this week, once as a prep and once with the group. Cried both times, even though it was three <laughs> days apart. That end scene, it still gets you. You just can't get that with anything no, else. I don't. No,
2: think. no, it's true. I have to say that uh, in the original script, there were three endings. We we shot two different endings uh, that weren't used, but in the original script, uh, I, from memory, the last shot was of Paddington and Aunt Lucy uh, sitting on a roof chatting as the the there's a street party below in in the snow and I, I i kind of teared up and when i read it that i mean that's the beauty of filmmaking isn't it and and great storytelling is that the moment at the end of paddington 2, where they kind of say we all club together you kind of know where it's going yeah. it's going to be we didn't club together and get your watch you know, <laughs> or something like that or a stencil set i mean it is kind of you know where it's heading and as he walks to the door, you know what's coming, and it still gets you.
0: Yeah, it's such a beautiful moment, and uh, we we just wanted to sort of round things off to to talk a little bit about yourself. You know, as a huge film fan, you know you've you pr- have presented the BBC's flagship film podcast and a radio show on more than one occasion. This uh, coronavirus isolation situation that everyone's going through is going to give people a lot of opportunities to sit at home and watch some films we were very keen to hear if you had any deep cut recommendations of things that people could perhaps check out, something that might be a new perspective or something they haven't heard of before.
2: Uh, well, that's impossible to answer because, I mean, what, I mean, I could, you know, what genre of films do people like? I mean, mm. it's, I you know, as a family, um, we have just, you know, we've got one old person staying in our house and I've got my kid and the films that we have, watched over the last week actually which have been a joy to watch have been the harry potter series in sequence and there's something incredibly moving actually about seeing you know the three main characters in it uh, at age eight and then age 18 is something it's i mean i can't think of many films or any films where you've got a group of people that you you see grow up you genuinely see grow up you know, not just kind of Ron, Hermione and and Harry, but, you know, all the other kids in the class as well. You know, they're all there 10 years later looking like young adults. And I think they're, they're full of such kind of empathy, the films. I think they're really beautifully made films. I think that the, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, as the kids get older and as the directors change, the tone of the films change as well. And that's just interesting to watch. But the ideas within it are really good fun. They're really creative. They're quite funny. They're going to have their moments of kind of uh, hold on to your hat. So they've they've been great as family films and actually trying to find films that can cover everybody. Um, I know with my son, my son's now 14. And probably when he got to about seven or eight was the point when I'd kind of punched the air and I thought, great, I can show him all these films that I used to love watching. And what was interesting was I'd say to him, because the pace of films has changed, you know, um, so I, I thought, well, let me go back slowly. I'll work backwards slowly because all the Pixar stuff he'll see and he gets and he understands and that's his generation. And, uh, obviously started with, um, another great trilogy, uh, which is back to the future. Oh, uh, and my favorite film, you know, uh, you know it, the, the first film in particular, I mean, I like all three, but the first film in particular still really holds up in terms of its ideas, in terms of pacing, in terms of humor. It's a really, really smart film. And so I kind of got him with that. And then I kind of moved backwards through certainly the ones that captured me when I was a kid, which would be on telly. The Great Escape and The Magnificent Seven. And then I some like it hot. And then I kind of thought, let me try him on Roman Holiday. (laughs) I'm not sure if he's going to go with it. Went with it. And the, the rule we had was if you don't like it in the first 10 or 15 minutes, we'll switch it off because it's not a punishment. But then Sherrard um, was another one with Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn, which is great fun. And so they were the ones that kind of nabbed him. And then, then I took him back to A Matter of Life and Death, which is brilliant, and then slowly worked backwards. to I thought, if he can handle the 40s and the 30s, then he'll be able <laughs> to handle just about any kind of film that comes up. And so that's the kind of joy, is that there's tons. I mean, there's so much out there on streaming now that you can find. Just apply that rule, because if a film hasn't got you in the first 10 or 15 minutes, then maybe it's not for you. And perhaps leave it. Go and find something else, because there's so much choice out there. But, you know, particularly those old movies are a treasure trove, actually. And and also because of the time they were made, particularly the ones that were made in the 40s, they were inherently reassuring because people were at war. And so those are quite good ones to find at this time. Obviously, we've just gone past the Christmas period so wonderful life is probably out of it but the shop around the corner is a james stewart film which was the inspiration for you got mail and the original one is just really lovely it's such a warm film the bishop's wife is another one with uh carrie grant and david niven that's a really lovely film and so you know that that period of the 40s and 50s is quite an interesting one to look at if you want reassurance roman holiday is a really really lovely film And then, you know, if you want to go dark, then obviously anything from the early 70s (laughs) is going to be pretty dystopian in its kind of uh, uh, emotional viewpoint. So, um, yeah, experiment. I mean, I'd love to hear, you know, from people who've kind of seen films that, 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 you know, I've missed or haven't seen or hadn't heard of or whatever. And that's before you get to kind of world cinema.
1: Also interesting thought, is how films change in different times so if we're Mm. in a time of relative peace and everything's settled is the trend of films to be like you say darker and more dystopian and when we're in more difficult times do we have more yeah
2: is it sort of like the inverse of what you might expect exactly well it's interesting isn't it because you know the films of the late 50s uh, so many of them were preoccupied with kind of nuclear warfare and you've got you know classics like dr strangelove which deal with it directly but all those kind of Godzilla type movies, you know the them and you know giant ants was all about that fear of nuclear proliferation, but also came at the time where youth culture through rock and roll and Elvis and people like that, James Dean had been defined in a different way. So a lot of those '60s films about youth culture are kind of interesting because that takes time to shift. The end of the '60s, where you had the kind of you know the Bonnie and Clyde's and and stuff like that, is. Is a change of gear again in terms of you know, how young people are perceived and how you know good and bad is perceived and, and stuff like that. So it's interesting by genre because I think also they reflect what was going on socially and economically at those times. And you know, I know with Bollywood films, for instance, they absolutely match up to partition in 1947 and independence, to you know, this kind of new hope in these films in the 50s and the 60s, which were all kind of the 60s was a period of hope, you know, uh, until people kind of went, God, Vietnam's not very good, is it? <laughs> um, what's this Vietnam nonsense going on? Um, so, you know, there, there's those interesting parallels that that always kind of happen. And, you know, the same way that the 80s, uh, the early 80s particularly, you know, the notion of the the hero changed from, you know, the, the Al Pacino's of the early 70s, not sort of, you know, necessarily pin-ups. Blah, blah, blah. And then it's Schwarzenegger and Stallone until you get to the end of the 80s when Die Hard comes out and it's back to a norm, more normal person being heroic. <laughs> I think they're just really interesting trends to follow. Can I say one thing now you've got me talking? You, can I say one thing about, um, or a couple of things about Paddington 2? Yes, yes, please, please, do. please yeah. do. So, Paddington 2, one of, one of the, the real joys which uh, people may not realize from watching the end product is just how brilliant. Hugh Grant is at improvising. Oh, really? It's some of the best improv I have ever seen. Uh, he did as that character. There was one uh, half day that we filmed outside and the scene got dropped and the information within the scene then got used in other bits of the film. Uh, but in that one bit, Hugh had to improvise or did improvise around the lines to a degree that I've never seen before. It was extraordinary extraordinary and you could tell that he was loving it from his performance you know but um boy off the leash as a comedy improv performer he was amazing because he you know one of the dangers with improv is that you can become incredibly self-indulgent and he never did it was always within the kind of remit of the character um so there are kind of moments in there where he has thrown either lines or looks that were not it.
1: <laughs> it does come across because his whole character is just so much fun and he's just a joy to watch. So I'm really, really happy to hear that that he was yeah. enjoying it as much as he looks like he's enjoying it.
2: Yeah, no he loved it. He loved it. This is probably a slightly equivalent of a name droppy thing to, to to say. But he did kind of at one point say to me, and I was talking to him uh, about a week or two in and he said, uh, he said, you know, he said, I've got a friend, and his nickname's Kumar. And I said, he said after your show, he said he was kind of looked a little bit. I said, I oh, really. And then Hugh kind of said to me, he said, can we have a selfie then? And I thought, oh my god, Hugh Grant asking me for a selfie. This is amazing. This is amazing. So it was, that, it was that kind of set, though. You know, it was just everybody kind of hanging out and and having a laugh.
0: He's such, it was such a wonderful, wonderful performance. We we talked about it quite a lot. And there's so many quotable lines of his as well. When he, yeah. when he looks in the drawer oh. and he goes, Oh, thank Larry. thank Johnny. Thank <laughs> yeah. all the ghosts of the avenue. And it's just one that you can just use time and again.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, exit there, pursued, pursued by, by an actor. actor. Oh. How it, it, great a line is that, you know? <laughs> And also, I can't think of anybody else who could inject as much kind of, you know, weight into the, just the word cravat <laughs> as he could. Oh, incredible. So good.
0: incredible. It's been such a pleasure, such a pleasure talking to you. It's no, not at all. Absolutely I, I, I mean, fantastic. I mean, you, you
2: do realise I could carry on talking for another two hours. Oh. We started talking about film. It was kind of like, you know, conversation in heaven for me. Here's a, just a throwback to what we were talking about at the beginning. So one of the things that as a kid, when I was growing up, trying to work out where I fitted in, because it was always a question, the identity question was always a big one, because although uh, I was different to all the other kids in my class, I, you know, I had a better accent and spoke better English than they did. So, you know, that was a confusing thing for them as well as for me. And so working out who your people are, becomes something that becomes quite important and you know uh, Riz in his conversations yesterday was talking about he is a stateless person and his country is dignity you know which is a really beautiful and powerful thing and and for me because of the experiences I had growing up there was a point where I realized that you know my people were the people who were passionate in the same way that I was about things so film being one of those primary things it's kind of you know when I found other people who were as interested in in movies as I was, it was a joy, and it still is. It still is. You know, stick me in a room full of people I've never met um, who love film, and I'm the happiest person in the world.
0: (laughs) A wonderful chat with Sanjeev there, and we were just so happy that he was so generous with his time and his insights.
1: Yeah, he's just such a great guy and someone you could talk to for hours and hours. And what a great time to, to do that when we're all locked down doing nothing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. So next up, we're going to talk with Josh Hallam from Health Refugees. He was involved in its formation back in 2015. And he started off by telling us what it is that Help Refugees do.
3: Help Refugees started in 2015 um, as a hashtag. And now, five years down the line we're um helping basically about one hundred and twenty five different projects, different groups of volunteers across um Europe, the middle east, and the u s mexico border support people and help um help people basically who are migrating in transit who are fleeing war, fleeing persecution, fleeing destitution any of the reasons why someone might leave home and helping them on that journey in a very hostile situation globally whereby people who are leaving home for whatever reason um are very often not offered help or worse than that are often put in more difficult situations by the people that they're asking for help often large governments and situations like that so volunteers and groups of people helping out often need extra support and there are large numbers of people who are happy to give um, money and time to try and help people who are helping other people basically um so maybe that's a group of people on, uh, a large, in a large refugee camp in Greece who are half people who are going through the refugee experience and half international volunteers who are doing a project to do sanitation in a situation whereby there isn't government or large NGO groups doing that. So we help them with supplies. We might buy them the resources they need, the physical material resources they need. We might help their volunteers with living expenses. We might help advocating for them at a governmental level. We might help them communicate about their work to the public so that they can raise more money. Um, so we kind of help in those ways and helping people help people essentially.
1: So it sounds like a lot of what you do is actually quite community led because it's not just the charity helping, it's help, like you're saying helping others to help
3: refugees. Yeah, I mean, we started off as like a more traditional, uh, almost like charity sort of situation. Like we were a large group of people who were helping out um, in Calais and in Northern France in 2015, when there was the big jungle camp. So like a large number of volunteers, a large number of people in one place, centrally managed, um, and a lot of resources going to help directly as we've kind of evolved and changed its functions much more like trying to find the local group who are doing something already and giving them what they need to carry on and do their work more.
0: As you mentioned, you started in 2015, the political landscapes changed quite significantly predominantly in the US and the UK since then. How have you found your work changing since that
3: time? The political situation in terms of the movement of of refugees to Europe has changed massively. You have like much, much harder circumstances for people who are coming from the Middle East, et cetera, and from uh, from East Africa, politics changing as well. People's political wills and political sort of views changing. So you have more shifts, right wing across Europe. Um, And the US, of course. So you equally have the swinging of the pendulum the other way. You have an enormous amount of people who don't feel that those governments represent them um, and who are very active supporters because of that. Um, So we have like a huge amount of people who aren't happy with the way that the UK treats people in terms of the hostile environment, for example, who are actively getting involved to counter that. And this is like a way that people can get involved. I mean, choose love. Choose love is the the perfect analogy and the perfect um, symbol for it, I think. That a lot of the politics since 2015 has been people choosing division and people choosing fear, essentially. And I feel like we provide um, and are part of a community of people who are choosing the opposite of that and being... And, yeah, and essentially choosing love as opposed to division. I think we are a counterbalance to that politics in some ways.
0: The film Paddington too, it may sound a child's-oriented film, but there are a lot of really strong messages in there particularly about welcoming immigrants and refugees into communities and the importance of having a positive community atmosphere. What's your experience of that and that sort of community building aspect?
3: The hostile environment and the policies that are in place drive that wedge and make the connection between people who are trying to settle in the UK and people who are already settled in the UK slightly more difficult. And that's all natural because people will just naturally form connections with each other and those communities will form if if those restrictions aren't in place. It's a really, really good and important thing to focus on because unfortunately there are forces that are pushing against that. If you, if you like look at the situation we're in right now with COVID-19 and the situation that we're in NHS wise, like the enormous amount of people who are saving people's lives right now are people who might not have been born in the UK, but there's just far there's thousands and thousands more ways that people who weren't born in the UK affect positively our communities and our situations like the some many of the COVID-19 mutual aid groups that have set up um, are people dropping off shopping for their neighbors or ringing up old people and or, you know making sure that people are kind of okay in their communities like at least I know at least a few of them have been set up by Settled refugees um, an amazing person who we partner with a lot um, a guy who's um, a Syrian refugee Called uh, Imad, he he's an ambassador for help refugees and has done. We do a lot of work with him as well. He spends a lot of his time raising money for for charity and a lot of money raising money for refugees by running uh, pop up food stalls and things like this. He's a bit of a celebrity in the fat falafel world. On day one, before before most of these community aid groups were set up, he was driving around these London, dropping shopping off of people. You know, like and this is someone who's only lived in the UK a handful of years. And has incredibly strong roots in his local community because of the sort of person that he is in that way. And I think we really, really sadly miss a trick when um, the sort of hostile environment is allowed to separate people from the amazing connections that they could form. If People are forced into relying on charities and relying on food banks, et cetera, because of them, them not having rights to public funds or them not having the right to work. They can't make workmates. They can't make mates at the supermarket. They can't make... They can't form those connections that protect us all, and that are showing right now to be incredibly protective against crises. Like you need to know your neighbours, and it's a real, it's a real missed opportunity for people with such diverse um, and interesting like life experiences, and you can be part of that. To not be part of that, and such a waste, I think.
0: I wanted to ask you what people can do in order to help um, refugees, as your 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 uh, organisation name would suggest during these these really difficult times, when most of us, to be honest, are going to be stuck in our homes for 95-99% for of the day.
3: Social isolation is huge. Like So many people who basically are refugees or asylum seekers or in any of that situation will be in isolation. Those who are in accommodation will often like be alone or be in some sort of situation of loneliness, so getting involved with groups who are supporting there's groups popping up like the mutual aid groups as well as other associations who are popping up to support people in that sort of situation. So I know in Hackney, there's a group, it provides an example of like a group that is setting up and fundraising and doing like deliveries of food and supplies for people who are in that situation. I think as well, there's so much to be doing in terms of pressuring like politicians and and trying to rate and trying to spread internet um, petitions and things like that around as well. Thousands of people sat behind their computers pressuring their MPs about things like getting people released from detention centres so that they can come into the communities and be in safe accommodation where they can self-isolate if they're ill and have access to sanitation and have access to their own food and things like that. Um, There's a lot of things going on around refugees and people who are sadly forced to live on the streets or forced to live on charity kindness because they don't have access to public funds or the right to work. This was always something that people were campaigning on but right now it's something that people are campaigning on tooth and nail because it's become even more threatening and even more um, dangerous essentially as we're in this situation whereby a lot of those services have started to, to be suspended. So really fighting for those things is important. There's also a, a mutual aid group on Facebook that's specifically for migrants and refugees in London. The group in London has been really active and it currently has nearly a thousand members so far in less than a week. Um, and that's just linking people up with people who can help where they can. There's some amazing resources that are being made as well by um, the COVID-19 mutual aid group um, and Refugee assisting associations about like how to safely help someone who's like in a situation like this. What sort of things you need to think about in terms of people's um, legal status and terms of people's document status. So there's loads of resources on that. I'd like recommend people check out the COVID nineteen um, mutual aid group for for um, for London for refugees and migrants. That's you can find that on Facebook and stuff.
0: So great, don't you think, to get a real world perspective of of the work that people do and how much important work still can be done, even though we're all locked down in our own homes.
1: And it really did give some insights there into what it's like to be a refugee and also what Josh means when he describes this hostile environment that you know creates barriers for people being able to form those community connections. That's not something I'd ever actually really thought much about. So it goes to show how important it is for us to be the ones to make the effort to create those connections with people who may not be able to do that themselves.
0: So that's just about it for our Paddington 2 Companion podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to those conversations. Don't forget that we will be hosting our next live watch along on Friday evening. And we will be speaking to you guys on Instagram as we do a poll for which film we should choose. And then our big unveiling will be on Monday night.
1: This week is going to be a TS movie club community pick. So... No one can be cross about the film that we choose. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, so we will speak to you guys later in the week and we look forward to seeing you all on Friday.
1: Bye, 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 bye. bye, 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 bye. bye, bye. bye, bye